Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. I started out my academic life as a historian of the Habsburg monarchy, but I teach in a small school, and I teach lots of classes, and I also have a growing, as you've noticed, growing interest in the history of mass violence, and all of that has meant that I've drifted away from that original field that I was interested in. And so it's a thrill today to talk to somebody whose primary interest is, in fact, the history of Hungary and its Jewish community, and how that fits into the broader European context. Ferenc Letzo is Assistant Professor of History at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. He's the author of three books, has edited three, edited three additional volumes, and has published a number of articles and essays. Today we're going to talk about his most recent book, Hungarian Jews in the Age of Genocide, an Intellectual History, 1929-1948. The book is a careful, concise, and powerful analysis of how Hungarian Jews responded to the traumas of the 1930s and 40s shows the complexity of the challenges facing them, that simply saying the 1930s and 40s may mislead more than it clarifies. I'm confident Ferenc can help us unpack the world his subjects were facing and why it matters. And so I'm really looking forward to talking to him. And Ferenc, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Good morning, and thank you for having me on the show. So I always ask people at the beginning to say a little bit about how they became, how they decided to become a professional studying whether it's history or sociology and anthropology. So, so for instance, why did you decide to be a historian? Uh, I should probably start by saying that I was born in the early uh, 1980s and mm. uh, both of my parents uh, were researchers uh, at the time. Uh, and so I went to a really good high school uh, in the 1990s here in Budapest, uh, where I'm from. And that was a really exciting time uh, also for, for historical discussions. You know, there was a general opening of the country mm-hmm. and there was a lot of debate about the recent past. And Jewish history and the history of the Holocaust were very uh, central to that, next to the history of communism, which, which just uh, ended. So that was the time I was growing up and, and that triggered my interest 
in history at a quite early age. Uh, at the same time, I should I should also also say that I, I didn't really plan to be a historian when I was a teenager <laughs> or so. Uh, I was at least uh, equally interested in literature and in philosophy, huh. uh, and I did a, a, a BA degree, uh, which was an interdisciplinary uh, one. Uh, I, I studied uh, the, the humanities uh, rather than just history, so I really became a historian quite uh, gradually uh, over over time, and I also found uh, the topic I wanted to write my dissertation about, which is uh, Hungarian Jewish uh, intellectual history, as you, mm. as you just uh, mentioned, uh, really rather rather gradually. I started uh, out wanting to write something about interwar uh, Hungary and uh, with with a strong uh, component uh, on Jewish perspectives. And really, as I was I was uh, getting into uh, uh, the material, I realized that there was really uh, plenty of unexplored. Sources. So I basically sticked uh, uh, to, to this topic, uh, and I explored it for a number of years, and that's how this uh, monograph we are going to be discussed uh, emerged. Uh, so, so that's uh, that's the story uh, in in brief, I suppose. <laughs> so, so you got your degree at, at Central European University, and, and and the some of the members of the history department there are actually editors of the series in which this book um, is published. <laughs> Uh, this is a school with a really interesting history. What's your experience like there? The Central European University is really quite a special uh, place. Uh, there isn't anything quite comparable to it, uh, I would say. It's the only English-language-speaking university in Central and Eastern Europe where you really have students from all the major mm. countries uh, of the region, uh, some of the best ones, I hope. <laughs> and and it's really an environment where there is an open dialogue uh, about uh, the recent past of this region, which, as you as you may know, is extremely complicated mm -hmm. and also uh, is, is very controversial in, in a great uh, number of ways. And the CU, I think, has has really managed uh, not only in history, but but I think in history, perhaps in particular, uh, to position itself as you know a place where Western type of scholarship is uh, being produced uh, locally by people who know the Western academic tradition well enough, but are also, so to say, close enough to the sources and really know uh, the countries they are studying very well. So I think that's really the, the combination that's, that's quite, quite specific uh, to the CU. So I was very glad to be there. You know, I made, I, I, I should also say I made a lot of friends. I think there's really been a really great atmosphere mm -hmm. uh, while I was uh, studying there. Uh, and, uh, uh, and again, I was also, uh, as, as you uh, may know, I was also a researcher uh, in Germany. So I yeah. am also somewhat familiar with, uh, uh, the German tradition of studying the region, and I would say, you know, the CU is uh, in, in, in some ways uh, the uh, place to study these countries precisely because it's sort of from within, and that's also very important uh, to what I, I am doing as a historian. Yeah, it's interesting. I, my, my students, um, I, I've just had to recently um, add a course in the, a ca to the course catalog here on the Cold War because my students don't realize it, it existed. It's now long enough ago that 1989 is is something that their parents or possibly even their grandparents um, experienced, and that's here in the United States. And um, and perhaps we'll come back to this at the end of the interview. But um, but I think the description you just offered um, would challenge my students because they don't understand that. The kind of their sense of the complexity of European history is the first half of European history, not the second half, because that's what gets paid. That's what gets talked about in the United States. <laughs> so, so why this book, um, Hungarian Jews in the Age of Genocide: 
1929 to 1948. So you bracket the Second World War. Why did you decide to write this book in this way? Mm-hmm. Right. So my dissertation really ended uh, in early 44, so just before uh, the major chapter uh, of the Holocaust in Hungary. Uh, and I really focused on 29 to, to 43. Uh, and then I decided to, to ex- expand uh, the focus to also study the early post-war years, right, which was a very important uh, decision. There is really a lot... Uh, going on uh, in scholarship uh, around the Holocaust and especially around the Jewish responses to the Holocaust today, which mm-hmm. focus on the early post-war years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, a new wave uh, of uh, studies showing that there really wasn't any silence when it comes uh, to the Jewish communities of survivors. Uh, and I found uh, Hungary to offer uh, one of the richest uh, source bases uh, in this respect. Uh, this is what the second half of my book uh, draws on. Uh, I found, you know, a huge collection uh, of witness accounts, mm-hmm. there were plenty of published memoirs uh, in the in the immediate uh, post-war month uh, and years, and also there was an incipient historiography uh, developing already in the late 1940s. So I wanted to focus on those as well. So I decided to to expand uh, my focus. But originally, this was really a project on the Horthy era, so the interwar years and the years of the Second World War uh, in uh, Hungary. Uh, and my basic idea was, and this is something quite well known internationally, I, I, I believe, that the Hungarian Jewish community was the last major Jewish community in the Nazi sphere of influence. As I mentioned, the major wave of deportations took place in the very late stages of the war. The Holocaust in Hungary has been labeled the last chapter of the, of the Holocaust by Götz Ali and Christian Gerlach in, in, the, in their book, uh, which was published uh, in, in German uh, under uh, that uh, title. Mm-hmm. And so my interest was really in what what is happening uh, in the Hungarian Jewish intellectual uh, milieu in those years when they are already being persecuted and there were various forms of persecution, but the large majority of the community uh, in Hungary is still, is still alive uh, until, until early 44, and they are heavily uh, discriminated against uh, uh, by the Horthy regime, but still they have a hope uh, of, of surviving uh, the almost uh, continent-wide mm-hmm. genocide, and they also had the chance to publish a number of, of, of journals and yearbooks, even uh, during the years of the Second World War, all the way up until 1944, and this is really what triggered my interest. You know, nobody has really quite explored uh, these publications uh, previously, um, and, and uh, I, I thought uh, that you could really study the evolution uh, of Hungarian Jewish perspectives in a, in a really new way uh, by looking at them more closely. So, so let's unpack some of what you said, because some of our listeners may not be completely familiar with the history of the Habsburg monarchy or its end. Um, so, so you mentioned the name Horthy. Um, who is that? So Mikos Horthy is the regent of Hungary who comes to power in 1919, uh, right after the, uh, the First World War. Hungary has a Republican regime for a short period of time. Then, then there's a Bolshevik takeover for 133 days. And Horty is the leader of the counter-revolutionaries who then establish a kind of national conservative regime. It's, a, it's an authoritarian mm-hmm. form of government with a, with a very moderate, uh, 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 sorry, very mild form of, of liberal tenets being uh, incorporated into it, at least in the 1920s. And then this regime radicalizes uh, ever, ever further uh, to the right, uh, and it starts to, to discriminate uh, its Jewish population uh, ever more severely, uh, again, starting in 1938 with the first uh, anti-Jewish law, 
and it starts to adopt, uh, um, in a way, Nazi-style legislation, you may say, uh, by the early 1940s. In 1941, there's, there's the infamous uh, racial uh, law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though the large majority of the community is alive until 44, there are several instances of mass violence committed against the Hungarian Jews uh, before that. This is something I really want to to emphasize, yeah. uh, you know, again, in, in, to balance uh, what I said uh, just uh, before. Um, uh, again, the Hungarian army is, is involved uh, uh, also in the in the genocidal campaign against Jews on the Eastern Front. There's also a, a first round of deportations from Hungary in 41, in the, very early on, just after the Nazi attack on the Soviet Union. And, and there's also uh, uh, mass violence in, in Vojvodina, in the uh, northern Serbian uh, parts that, that Hungary so say, re-annexes or re-occupies uh, in 1941. So, so that's why I call you know, these years uh, the age of uh, persecution, the years of persecution. I take the, uh, the expression from, from Saul Friedland there, as, as many of the uh, listeners will mm-hmm. know. And I try to say that there's something similar going on in Hungary between 1938 and 1944 uh, to, to Nazi Germany just a few years earlier. So, you know, if, if uh, Friedlander is talking about the years 33 to 39, uh, when, when he's using the term the years of persecution, I say that basically five years later, a very similar process is taking place yeah. uh, in Hungary. It starts five years later. It lasts, in a way, five years uh, longer. And then you have the years of extermination, which, which for, for Friedlander is, is basically everything um, uh, that, 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 that belongs to the years of the Second World War, right? All those six years. And in the case of Hungary, that's, that's uh, basically 44, 45. Mm-hmm. So the last uh, year of the war from March 44 till, uh, till the liberation, uh, you have, you have uh, the, uh, the Holocaust, uh, its main chapter. So that's, that's, that's how I conceptualized uh, uh, the study. Uh, and, and so you that again, yeah. so, sorry. And no. that again, you know, concerns the, the, the Horthy uh, era uh, in, in, this, in this way. Oh, so how big is the Jewish community in Hungary during this period? Uh, right. So uh, this is, again, a very interesting question, uh, because uh, by, 19, by the late 1930s, you know, the five largest uh, Jewish communities of Europe all live in what we now call, I think, Central Eastern Europe, right? Mm-hmm. It's the Polish one, uh, the Soviet one, the Czechoslovak one, uh, the Hungarian and the Romanian one. So these are the five largest uh, Jewish communities in, in Europe. And this is something that I think hasn't really been quite uh, reflected uh, in the academic literature. Mm-hmm. I, I speak about that also uh, in, the, in my conclusion, that if you look at Holocaust studies, there's a very notable shift uh, to the east, right? There's ever more focus, right. not on, on, on occupied Poland, which has always been there to some extent, but also increasingly uh, the Soviet Union comes, comes into view. But the fact that, that you know, Jewish history was very heavily concentrated in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, and this doesn't only mean Poland, because mm-hmm. again, Poland is, is, I think, quite exceptional, because there the attention has always been clearly there. I mean, that's something well recognized and well acknowledged uh, also further west. But the other communities, you know, the Czechoslovak, the Hungarian, the Romanian, I think haven't been researched uh, nearly nearly as well as, for instance, the German uh, or the Polish uh, stories. So that's where, that's where also this, this book tries to make a, a contribution. And the Hungarian Jewish community, again, Hungary changes, as you may know, uh, uh, Hungary expands, so, so the territory changes uh, between 1938 and 1941, uh, four times. Hungary basically becomes nearly twice as large uh, as, as it was after the First World War. Mm-hmm. And that means that the Hungarian Jewish community becomes one of the largest ones uh, in Europe. It's, it's really just right behind 
uh, Romania at that time. And by 1943, and this is again also uh, quite uh, quite interesting, is the largest uh, one uh, west of the Soviet Union, right? So it's really the largest community still left alive in the Soviet sphere of influence. Now, again, you can take different indicators uh, to, to, you know, discuss how many people there were, whether you take a religious definition uh, or whether you want to, you know, look at the, the, the Nazis' racial definition to see how many people they wanted to persecute. You obviously end up with very different numbers, but it's in the range of seven uh, to 800,000 people mm. uh, just within uh, the borders of Hungary uh, by, by 43. Again, so, something close to 10% of them pass away in, in, in violent ways uh, before uh, 1944. Mm. So that's a very large uh, number. It's around 60,000 people, maybe slightly uh, more. There's, the, the, the numbers are not, are not very exact here. Again, there's a lot of uh, problems of calculation also deriving from the border changes, right? So people who may not have been Hungarian citizens before the Second World War nor afterwards may yeah. have been victims of the Holocaust in Hungary. So that, that is really a complicating uh, factor uh, there, we don't need to uh, go into that uh, too much here, I, I, I believe. But so it's really a major community. And another uh, thing I wanted to maybe add as a last uh, point, mm -hmm. that also after the war, and this is again something crucial to, to understand why I, why I talk about uh, you know, 29 to, to 48 uh, in my book, uh, I say that also after the war, next to the French and the British communities, so the two uh, major Jewish communities in Western Europe, is the Romanian and the Hungarian, which are the which are the largest. Yeah. So you know you have also quite a substantial a community of survivors. Again, the, the large majority of, of, of Hungarian Jews are murdered uh, in 44, uh, 45, uh, but nonetheless, um, you also have a quite a large uh, number of survivors. In particular, in Budapest, uh, the, the, the the Jews of Budapest uh, mostly uh, are not uh, deported to the Nazi camps, and also you have camp survivors. Uh, you know, Hungarian Jews being deported in the very late uh, stages of the war, when also the Nazi uh, camp system uh, is being reorganized. Uh, they have, um, you know, more survivors uh, than they would otherwise have had, uh, probably, right? I mean, the, uh, the, the, this uh, year of extermination uh, is, is last, you know, one, one year, and those who get uh, uh, transported further from Auschwitz have uh, a certain chance, uh, again, mm. low, uh, low chance, but certain chance survivors. So you also have quite a number of returnees from the camps who actually then end up, uh, in some cases, coming back to Hungary, in other cases, going uh, elsewhere after 45. So, so as the Jewish writers who you study are, are, are thinking about the experience of, of, of persecution and the experience of living under the Hordi regime, um, at least one of the themes you, you discuss in your book is this attempt to understand whether the experience they're living through in the, the 30s is somehow a, a, a break, a, a pause in in the kind of, I don't know, progress that Jews have made or whether whether it's a, a, a permanent regression. Um, so, so maybe you could talk about what how do Jewish intellectuals kind of respond to this persecution in the 30s? Um, and what kinds of things are they talking about? How are they viewing their past? Um, what, what kind of policies are, are they debating? <laughs> right. So, again, this was really uh, the major uh, agenda in the first half of my book to, to mm -hmm. try to understand how the perspectives get uh, transformed. You know, what are the major themes uh, that they are discussing? Uh, and, you know, how and why this, this evolution of, of perspectives until uh, 44. So that's, again, a very central question. And here is, I think, one uh, aspect where, you know, I've, we've been talking about Hungary uh, a lot and, and uh, 
in a way in a national uh, frame uh, until mm-hmm. now, which is more or less what the book does. But it also does something slightly different or something more, which is to try to embed uh, this history in a transnational right, frame. Right. And this is really crucial for to understand my, my main uh, argument, because mm-hmm. what I try to, 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 to say uh, is that after 38, uh, you know, when Hungary starts to discriminate its, its uh, Jewish uh, population, and again, it, it adopts ever more severe uh, anti-Jewish laws, so it's a legal form of uh, discrimination, and there's, of course, a very uh, a, a severe process of uh, socioeconomic exclusion leading to the, to the large-scale ruin uh, of the community by the early uh, 40s. You know, Hungarian Jews typically start to look uh, uh, for some kind of uh, um, embedding of this crisis, of this, of this you know, tragic situation in Jewish history, right? Mm-hmm. They emphasize their Jewishness more than before. They are, of course, also, in a way, forced to do that, right? There are external constraints, external mm-hmm. reasons why they would do that, but there are also people who simply uh, are eager to find meaning uh, in their Jewishness and endow uh, you know, their persecution with meaning via Jewish references. Um, so this is what's happening until the early 40s, let's say 41 would be the key year here, and then, uh, as, as, as I'm sure all your uh, listeners will, will know well, the Nazis launch uh, the genocide against European Jews, and that, again, changes their perspectives mm-hmm. quite radically, because this is something that's happening practically all over Hungary, to some extent also within, if you look at, uh, if you look at the Vojvodina uh, case, as I, as I mentioned before. But essentially, it's something that's happening all over. You see, you have to, I think, remember that Hungary is directly neighboring Slovakia, right, the first country to deport mm-hmm. its Jews mm-hmm. uh, northwards to, to Auschwitz. Uh, Hungary is, of course, also directly bordering um, the Nazis uh, in the West with, with after the Anschluss uh, of 38. Uh, Romania is, of course, heavily involved uh, in the Holocaust early on, and so is uh, Croatia. Uh, and, of course, Hungary is also part uh, of the war on the Eastern Front. So, again, it's surrounded by countries uh, somehow uh, who, are, who are part of the Axis, who are, who are contributing to the Nazi war effort, and Hungary is as well. Now, this, of course, means that the situation of Jews is extremely uh, difficult. Uh, they, they barely have uh, alternatives. But one thing that they, that they come up with is to try to emphasize you know, their Hungarian, Hungarian affiliations. Yeah. So there is a revival of, of Hungarian affiliations in 42-43. And my argument is that it's not in spite of the genocide, but rather because of it. You see, they know that the genocide is taking place all over, uh, the country, uh, sorry, all, all over, uh, you know, Europe, mm-hmm. just just outside uh, the borders of the country, you see it happening uh, pretty much uh, more more or less uh, all over all over the place, and that is and that is why they feel that you know the Horthy regime is now their last hope of survival, right? So you have again a revival of Hungarian national uh, affiliations, national uh, the discourses of of, of loyalism, uh, and I would say that this goes a long way uh, in explaining you know why the Hungarian Jewish elite uh, is so loyal also in 44, right? This is a question that historians mm-hmm. have been mm-hmm. asking for many, many years. You know, this un- unfathomable uh, loyalty of the Jewish elites to the Hungarian state, you know, the lack of, of rebellion, the lack of uh, even an attempt uh, uh, to resist uh, early on. Uh, and this is something that I think if you look at the, the logic, if the, the dynamics of this, of this story, you may come to, uh, to understand it better, right? Because by 44, they really think, Hungary is their only chance uh, to survive. And, of course, Hungary, the Hungarian state, betrays them in the most terrible uh, way and is, of course, uh, very much involved uh, in perpetrating the Holocaust uh, in, in 44. Uh, 
but but that is that is again what I'm what I'm trying to mm-hmm. to show. Mm-hmm. So so one of the things I found interesting was this debate um, about why all of this was happening. To what and as I read it, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's something of a debate between. Um, Perhaps religious scholars who say that that one of the reasons is the drift away from uh, from faith and religious life, and those who have a more sociological or, or political explanation. Is, is, how how vibrant is that debate? Mm-hmm. Right. So again, I try to define you know who are Hungarian Jewish authors, and this yeah. was. A, Again, a very difficult uh, uh, thing to, to do, right? There's a lot of debate of who qualifies as a Hungarian Jew, and again, uh, you, you have a lot of a lot of contemporary scholars who debate uh, that question. And my point was really to look at the internal sources, uh, mm. uh, right? So uh, one thing, and this is again a part of, of my introduction, I tried uh, uh, to say that that these sources have been marginalized uh, in Hungarian scholarship. I take mm-hmm. a famous example for for those who know. Uh, Hungary people maybe uh, have heard of it at least. Uh, Janusz Djurjak is an author who wrote a massive uh, monograph on the, what he called the Jewish question in, in Hungary. So all the debates related to Jews uh, in modern uh, Hungarian history. And he basically said that, you know, the internal sources, so the sources that, that Jewish authors uh, wrote with Jewish audiences in mind do not really belong uh, to this uh, to this story now this is something very I think strange and and something that I of course uh, very much disagree with and if you wish uh, the book is a product uh, of yeah. of trying to, to explain why and how I disagree with with him uh, on this uh, issue so I try to say you know that if you want to to, to study Hungarian and Jewish intellectual history you have to basically look at all the Hungarian and Jewish authors who well first of all employ uh, the Hungarian language in a prominent way to discuss uh, Jewish themes but also that they express a level of Jewish self-consciousness in the form of these uh, Jewish uh, intellectual projects, or at least they conceptualize parts of their own experiences uh, as in important respects, uh, specifically Jewish ones, right? So these are the the criteria I use. And and when I did this, of course, I wanted to uh, arrive at a representative sample uh, of of intellectual uh, phenomena, but also I didn't want to impose too strict uh, group boundaries, right? I didn't mm-hmm. mean to say that, you know, these people still qualify as Jewish and others don't or something like that. I, 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 that, that was the last thing I would have wanted to do. But that then meant that I ended up looking a lot at, uh, you know, religious people in the, yeah. in the strict sense of the word. So, so rabbis, also people affiliated with the main center of Jewish scholarship, the, the rabbinical seminary. But I also uh, looked at intellectual journals, which were much more secular, right? So which you would consider something like an attempt to create modern Jewish culture in a secular key uh, in Hungary. Uh, Again, I looked at people who were working uh, very much at Jewish institutions like the Jewish Gymnasium or the Jewish Museum, which are, uh, of course, they have a religious uh, component, but, but they are essentially... I would call them secular kind of authors. So that is where this disagreement or that this is where this, this mm-hmm. duality, mm-hmm. I think, comes from. If you look at chapter two and also four, uh, you know, most of the authors uh, whom I'm uh, studying there are uh, rabbis. Uh, and if you look at, for instance, chapter three, when I look at uh, intellectual journals, there you will, you will find a lot of people from all uh, walks of life, right? People who often were brought together under the Jewish label for the first time in the years of persecution mm. in Hungary. Uh, and it, of course, also has as a last point, let me uh, mention that this also has a gender uh, component. Mm. Uh, 
again, if, if you look at the, uh, the, 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 the chapters on the religious uh, segment, uh, you, will, you will not find uh, women there since this was uh, the, uh, the, the gender divide uh, typical for, for this rather uh, conservative uh, form of Judaism in interwar uh, and, and Second World War uh, Hungary. While in the chapter on, on, on you know, intellectual periodicals from the time with a more secular uh, uh, agenda, you also find a number uh, of, of, of female uh, mm-hmm. authors. Again, not, not too many, so it's again still quite a low uh, percent, but there is that, that uh, gender difference between, uh, bet- between these, these, these two, two groups. Now, the, the other thing that struck me about the first half of this book is, is as you say, the degree to which the su- your subjects are really thinking transnationally, that the understanding and the the, um, the degree of attention they paid to politics, particularly in Germany, but also other places, was um, was impressive. And they actually knew quite a bit about what was happening in, in Germany. Absolutely, yes. They and, and, uh, and I think I'm right. There, there's actually an author, and I've forgotten his name, who who pens quite a insightful report in I think 42 about and laying out actually the the claim that although I don't think he used the word genocide, that what was going on was in fact something um, different than had ever happened before. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Well, let's turn. So, so you've talked about 1944 a lot. Um, maybe I could ask you briefly to just kind of give us the chronology in 1944, because um, this is going to bear on some of the things you talk about in the second half of the book. So, so what happens in 1944? Right. There is, uh, as you can, I think, as, as all, all the listeners can probably well imagine by now, there, there isn't any uh, question which is more uh, controversial uh, than that. Uh, in Hungary, that's also, again, the, uh, the big uh, debate uh, today. You know, what are the uh, causes uh, of the Holocaust in Hungary, right? Why do uh, the, the large majority of Hungarian Jews get uh, deported in such a short uh, period of time, so close uh, to the end of the war? Uh, uh, right, that's that's uh, again something that is very heavily uh, discussed. Partly because for a very long time, uh, the idea was that this is due to the German occupation uh, of the country. Right, that the Germany, which is again an ally, Nazi Germany is an ally of Hungary, and the Hungarians are in many ways um, profiting from that alliance uh, relatively early on. Right, I, I mentioned the territorial expansion uh, in the late 30s, early 40s, Germany decides to, to invade or to enter uh, Hungary uh, in uh, early uh, 44 on, on March 19th. It doesn't really encounter a significant uh, uh, amount of resistance. Uh, it's really an occupation by an ally, if that, if that is not a contradiction in terms. <laughs> uh, they, are, they are really um, working uh, together. And then the, ho- the Holocaust in Hungary follows uh, very, uh, very soon, right? The, 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 uh, the, the deportations again start within uh, two months. Uh, and and they also are at, at, at an un- unprecedented speed. That's something that's very often emphasized by scholars of the Holocaust in Hungary, that within two months, then, then uh, a very large majority of, of Hungarian Jews get, uh, get deported. Uh, over 400,000 people uh, arrive uh, in Auschwitz-Birkenau uh, in between May and July 44. And then the question really is, what is the connection, right? So, so how did uh, this German entry into the country influence the decision-making process, or, 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 or was, was it really chiefly responsible uh, for what happened, right? Mm-hmm. And I think many scholars in recent years, and by now already decades, I would say, have very much insisted 
uh, that this, this so-called German occupation doesn't quite explain uh, what happens. It's not, it's not the primary uh, reason. There's something really different. It's really the, the change uh, of behavior on the Hungarian side. Um, that, that would explain uh, what happens. It's really the Hungarians, you know, the, the, the people who want to commit uh, this genocide see a great opportunity uh, in, this, uh, in this entry of, of the Nazi army uh, and the Nazi uh, forces of, of persecution. To some extent, I mean, of course, Eichmann, as you know, famous, infamously also comes uh, to Budapest uh, and, and they have a certain plan, but it's really the Hungarian side which pushes for a more maximalist uh, implementation of the plan. There's a lot of new literature also on the interaction of the two sides, some of which shows, uh, I think, quite clearly uh, that, that some of the Hungarian uh, perpetrators, such as uh, Laszlo Endre, uh, was actually even more radical uh, than, than the Nazis. He had a, more, uh, he had a greater urge uh, to, uh, to you know, deport uh, Hungarian Jews. And he actually um, negotiated for 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 more, uh, you know, people to be to be deported, you know, to be deported at a faster at a faster uh, pace. Uh, uh, since you know the end of the war was nearing, and he thought uh, uh, that that this was this was the way to still still uh, implement uh, the genocidal plans. So again, that is that is the story in a nutshell. And then there is another element which I think is quite important uh, to to clarify. Uh, which is about uh, the fall of 1944, when the Hungarian fascists or the Hungarian Nazis, you may call them again, the, the labels uh, are, are contested, come uh, to power. But it's only, you know, this is the Arrow Cross uh, movement led by Ferenc Szálasi. But this is again uh, after the major uh, chapter, right? The, the major uh, phase of deportation still take place under the Stoyai government and when Horthy is, is still in power uh, in many ways. I mean, he's still... Uh, in that sense, uh, directly responsible for these for these events as the regent uh, of the country, and then you have um, a turn uh, to uh, to the Arrow Cross movement uh, again, put in power by by the Nazis uh, through a, a putsch uh, in in the middle of October, uh, and they continue uh, persecuting and, and, and murdering uh, Hungarian Jews uh, until until early '45. Uh, uh, but again, the, the major chapter is before before the uh, the fascist takeover. This is something that I wanted to. To mention, because I think it's often uh, mistaken in, in, in international scholarship, you know, there's often an assumption that the worst must have happened under the fascists, and that these fascists were somehow puppets of Nazi Germany. Uh, and of course, uh, this is an argument that also in Hungary has often been used, right? That the Holocaust was, uh, was essentially uh, a result of, of the fascists' uh, actions, who were then very much helped by the Nazis, and therefore the actual Hungarian responsibility would be somehow, somehow uh, of a lesser uh, kind. But in fact, uh, if you look at the story a, a bit more closely, uh, you realize that it's in many ways the interwar establishment uh, that, uh, that commits uh, uh, you know, the, the, the crimes, and it's not, it's not just you know, the right-wing uh, fringe which, which would be involved. So you mentioned before... Um, the kind of traditional historiography, which has argued that there was this this period of silence about the Holocaust, and that that period of silence ended in the 60s and 70s, and various explanations as to why that might be so. Um, and then you mentioned this, and, and so I guess I'd like now just briefly to ask you to expand on what you mentioned earlier about the the emerging, I don't know if you can call it consensus, but the emerging sense that that, that interpretation isn't really correct, that there wasn't this moment of silence, that, that Jews were talking about their experiences immediately after the war. How, how did we decide that that, that actually happened? <laughs> 
<laughs> right. I think that's a very, very interesting question because what I, what I think happens is that people who establish a, a Holocaust scholarship later on don't really talk about uh, their predecessors uh, too much. Mm. So you have mm -hmm. a sense that, you know, when Raoul Hilberg, for instance, publishes his, you know, groundbreaking monograph, he's not really emphasizing too much that there were people who have been uh, writing about this topic or, or who may have published uh, about the topic already right after the war. Uh, so there is certainly this early wave uh, of responses, which then gets largely forgotten and gets to be largely marginalized. And I think it's only in more recent years uh, that scholars have, have started to focus uh, on this. Now, again, Laura Jokusch, uh, who's a German uh, scholar uh, currently uh, working in Israel, has written, I think, a terrific uh, book called uh, Collect and Record. And she has really studied some of the major uh, uh, cases. It's, 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 again, it's some kind of European uh, panorama that she provides about all the uh, documentation centers and historical commissions that were studying the Holocaust right after the war. She, her major focuses are, uh, are uh, Poland and uh, France, but she also studies Austria, uh, Germany, and Italy. Uh, but she doesn't really talk much about Hungary, which is, again, of course, uh, understandable to some mm -hmm. extent. But my point is that Hungary also had such a wave, and it, in fact, was one of the largest uh, waves uh, anywhere uh, in Europe for some of the reasons uh, that I mentioned uh, early on. So it's, uh, I think, next to France uh, and Poland, it's really in Hungarian that you have the largest uh, corpus of sources to really prove uh, this thesis, right? That there was never really silence. And here, I, again, I wanted to maybe uh, draw on uh, Cesaranis, David Cesaranis' uh -huh. uh, point, uh, you know, who, who tragically uh, passed away just just last year, uh, who, who mentions uh, that he, even if we discard, uh, you know, the, this what he calls the myth of silence, uh, we, we still have to take into account that there was a deafness uh, of the surrounding world. Yeah. So, so many people don't really listen uh, to the survivors, and there are very, very few uh, non-Jewish people who would be interested uh, in these stories. So it really, in a way, remains a Jewish intellectual history, like I, like I study uh, in my uh -huh. book. And it's also only a generation or two later that you have finally something like a connecting uh, community, right? That's how Mary Fulbrook mm. uh, labels it in her recent uh, research, that, uh, that then there are suddenly people uh, all around the world who want uh, to, to find out more about these, uh, these stories of survivors and who are really interested uh, uh, in them uh, in a very empathic uh, way. And this isn't the case early on. So again, while I emphasize that there is a major wave of, of responses in Hungary, uh, this very much is an affair of the community of survivors, uh, tragically uh, enough, once again. So, so one of the one of the source sets of sources you find is a is a whole collection of interviews, which which sound fascinating. Um, who's collecting these interviews and why? Right, that's a very interesting question. Again, Hungary uh, has uh, it's a special situation, uh, partly because, uh, as I mentioned, there are two groups of survivors: uh, people who survived the Holocaust in Hungary and people who were deported to the Nazi camps, but managed to survive and managed to then to then also return. Uh, to their country of origin, and these two groups of people meet uh, around 1945. So those people who are receiving uh, people back, they are starting to inquire with them, you know, what they what they had experienced. And this uh, starts out in a very simple way. They want uh, them to also list, uh, um, just very simply list people they know uh, would be still alive, uh, but somewhere uh, abroad, as they as they see, right, so somewhere outside Hungary, and also to list people they they know to have been murdered. 
So they want to basically compile lists of the victims and lists of people they should still be looking for. This is how it starts. And then as time passes, and again, you have you know, thousands and thousands of survivors returning, asking for, for help. And while they are you know, asking for, for help to you know, reintegrate somehow or to, or to reestablish themselves, uh, in Hungary uh, in the early post-war month, uh, they start interviewing them. And again, this is, I would say, a semi-professional uh, project uh, because they also develop an extremely long questionnaire of some you know, 14 uh, pages, which they cannot quite apply, right? This is a massive uh, question, yeah. which would then mean that you would have to talk to everybody for hours and hours. So instead of uh, doing that, they just end up... Uh, uh, basically adjusting the interview. So the, the, the people who make the interviews, and there are altogether 29 of them, and most of them are women. This is, again, an important quality of the interviews, I would, I would, I would suggest. They, they, they make them in, in quite unique ways. I mean, right, every, every interviewer makes a different kind of interview, yeah. but they talk to altogether more than 5,000 people. Uh, again, there's like 3,000, over 3,600 uh, interviews that I had the chance uh, to look wow. at, and there are some of them where, where there's more than one person uh, speaking. The large majority of these are uh, in Hungarian. Some of them, and I think up to 20% or so, are in German. So there is also, uh, in that way, access for those who may not know uh, the rather idiosyncratic uh, Hungarian uh, language. <laughs> but, but, but the point is that uh, here you have again, a, a attempt at documentation, right? Many of the things that we assume you would want to know when you talk to a survivor or you would want to sort of talk about, they don't yet really have. Their interest is in many ways in historical documentation, I would say, and that's also what I tried to then study. So, you know, if they wanted to document uh, the Holocaust, what have they actually documented? You know, what yeah. were the linguistic codes? What were the, the key terms that they then used to denote, you know, what was so unprecedented about the Nazi genocide against European Jews? And that's basically what the, what the, what the, what the, what the core uh, part of this chapter uh, on, on these uh, interviews uh, is. So I, so I basically look at... Uh, perhaps above all, distinctions between different camps, you know, how different uh, nomenclature is being used and how these differences are then, are then explained uh, to, uh, during these interviews. Um, so that's, that's something I was very, very interested in, you know, how could survivors explain uh, in a way about the Holocaust uh, as a whole. And my, my conclusion is, and this might be very surprising in our age when, you know, we look at, I think, memories more for their subjective value, yeah. that actually these interviews have a lot of historical value as well. So again, as a historian, these are really, this is really an, a very impressive project of documentation that takes place via the survivors in 45-46. Yeah, one of the things I found most interesting about your discussion is the sense, is the, at least as I saw it, um, a sense in which some of the tropes and some of the kinds of language we now use were already widely established and used, but in other ways they're scrambling to come up with a language that can describe what they felt and experienced. Um, you also use memoirs, uh, seven I think, if I've got that right. Yes. Um, some by Jews, some by not, some not by Jews. Um, yes. They display some interesting differences. Can, can you talk about um, maybe the place to start is just to say they seem to date the start of the catastrophe differently. That's right. Yes. 
So this again relates to something we have been sort of discussing earlier on with the yeah. controversy around 44. And I studied the memoirs and again, I picked seven of them. And this is the only part of the book where I draw on so-called non-Jewish sources, right? Because I wanted to compare and contrast them. I basically what I do, I look at memoirs published in 45, 46. So around the same time that these interviews were made that we have just been discussing. And I wanted to see how they look at 44, 45. So, you know, what I call the year of extermination in Hungarian history, 44, 45. How are these uh, experiences, these events interpreted in the immediate aftermath? This was my question. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I knew somehow that they would be interpreted very, very differently by different people. This probably isn't too surprising. <laughs> but what I wanted to look at specifically is how do different groups of persecuted people who, who really, mm -hmm. you know, claim uh, to have just been persecuted, how do they uh, narrate these events and how do they endow them with some kind of meaning, you know, political, historical uh, or otherwise? And what I have found, and this is, again, I think an interesting point also when you look at uh, the, the discussions in Hungary uh, today, is that uh, it's the anti-fascists who introduce the, the idea of March 19th, 1944, in a very, very significant way. So what mm -hmm. we know today, as you know, the right-wing uh, attempt to, uh, to, in a way, shift the responsibility onto the German side, right, to, to, to emphasize the German occupation, this is really very heavily emphasized in their anti-fascist narratives, right? For them, you know, the turn uh, to fascism and then to be the beginning of their persecution mm -hmm. is March 19th. And this, again, coincides very closely to their own life experience. Because many of them were, you know, uh, captured by the Gestapo immediately upon the entry uh, of, of Nazi Germany into Hungary. And they were the first, you know, to be then persecuted. And because of that, they have also missed out on, in many ways, they have missed out on the persecution of Hungarian Jews. Right. So then, then they, if they survive and when they then uh, return uh, to Hungary and become politically quite uh, influential, at least many of the people I study then here have had a certain political role uh, in the post-war uh, era. They also develop something like ethnicist anti-fascism. I call it that way, and I say, you know, this ethnicism is, is really consists of two uh, two major uh, um, components, right? The the one is to overemphasize uh, the uh, the German occupation as as, as a breakpoint, as, as a kind of as a kind of rupture in in Hungarian history, and the second is to then not to really emphasize the Hungarian perpetrator role too much. So in that sense, you know, they can be anti-fascists by seeing the Germans as the perpetrators and the Hungarians as victims. Uh -huh. so, so this is what I'm trying to show. And in that way, you know, they also have a much more directly political interpretation of 44, 45. And if you look at then all the Jewish uh, memoirists, and there's really a lot of them uh, immediately after the end of the war, uh, but they are much, much more diverse. So if the anti-fascist non-Jewish uh, narrative uh, you know, in a way, uh, in a way, it happens to happens to be quite stable and happens to be quite uh, homogeneous in, in many ways. Uh, the the uh, the Jewish memoirists write about their experiences in very very diverse ways, and very often they don't find any clear political meaning. Right? It's more the accidental survivor survival of them that they are somehow uh, inquiring uh, about. So. You also, I guess the last group of kind of sources you talk about are attempts to to create some kind of historical narrative uh, mm -hmm. about the experiences there, right? People who are writing what we would call histories. 
Uh, and I was I was surprised, maybe more, maybe that word's not strong enough, by the degree to which there were people who were doing primary resource, publishing source documents, um, doing kind of what we would think of as traditional academic writing. Um, so maybe you could say something about how they, what kind of interpretive frames did they come up with for the Holocaust? Yes. So again, my last chapter is on four uh, people who have written histories, uh, published them in 47, 48, and they interpret the events in quite a different way. So I also try to, again, compare the perspectives. It's absolutely true uh, what you have just said, that there's a lot of uh, research going on, and some of this research, again, draws on the knowledge that was there before uh, 44. So again, this continuity uh, that I emphasize in intellectual historical terms is also important because some of the people who write, you know, these early histories uh, of the Holocaust were people who were already studying Nazism, studying, you know, persecution of Jews before the major chapter of the Holocaust in Hungary. So again, that is that is a precondition for why they could launch these, uh, these, these projects so early and, you know, complete them already uh, before uh, the Stalinization of Hungary. Uh, and again, there are four of them that I study. They, their names are uh, Samuel Löwinger, Ernő Munkácsi, uh, Jenő Levai, uh, and Endre Sós. Uh, and they all have a slightly different take, or you, you might say very uh, different take. Uh, Samuel Löwinger is a scholar of religion. He's the director of the rabbinical seminary in the 1940s. Uh, and he basically looks at the history of religion and how there is a German tradition of trying to deny uh, the, uh, the influence of, um, of, of Jews on Christianity to create a kind of new purified Germanic form of Christianity and that this then leads to what, what is the genocidal agenda against Jews or this, 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 this uh, is sort of the intellectual historical origins of the persecution. You may say, and again I don't mean to stretch the analogy too far, but Alan Confino in his new book, mm. A Word Without Jews, does something comparable, uh, again, uh, on, a, on a probably more, uh, hi on a higher and more sophisticated uh, level, but, but Löwinger's agenda is, is, I think, is, I think, in many ways uh, in line uh, with, with Confino's recent book. Now, uh, Munkachi is a very interesting case, and we're just going to publish uh, his book in English uh, next huh. year, so, so I'm very glad uh, to say that, because, again, much of the material I discuss in this book is not available uh, in English or in any other language than, than Hungarian, so that's fortunately uh, something that's going to at least uh, slightly uh, change uh, in the near uh, future. And Munkacsi was uh, the chief secretary of the uh, Jewish Council in '44, so he's somebody who's also accused of having uh, collaborated uh, with the Nazis. There's a lot of criticism of the leadership, and he writes a rather apologetic uh, book, uh, which is again uh, there to explain you know, how they uh, made their choices and why they acted uh, the way they did. And in that way, he, he writes a history of the Holocaust from the perspective of the persecuted or the leadership of the persecuted, uh, more, more precisely, which draws very heavily uh, on Jewish documentation, on Jewish mm -hmm. sources. Again, interestingly uh, enough, of course, these are sources uh, that he himself helped co-produce, right? As a chief secretary, he was yeah. very much there to produce some of these sources. So again, that's a very, very interesting uh, uh, case. Uh, and again, I, I wrote a long uh, introductory uh, essay for the translation of, of that book, which will be published uh, next uh, year. Now, Levi is the major researcher, the third uh, person I wanted to say a few words about. Uh, he's the one to publish uh, uh, altogether 12 uh, books 
1948. He's really, uh, he's really incredibly uh, productive uh, in these early uh, post-war years. He's a journalist uh, by, uh, by profession, uh, and of course he's used to writing a lot, uh, partly because of that. Uh, but he's the one to, to really, in a way, uh, grapple with the question of responsibility the most. You know, his different books uh, from these few years shift the emphasis uh, quite a lot, and he comes uh, to articulate uh, the Hungarian uh, responsibility, I think, ever more clearly as, as uh, the years uh, progress. Early on, he has a very clearly anti-German, uh, almost ethnicist uh, way of, of you know, blaming the Germans for everything. And by the late 40s, in his major synthesis called Jewish Fate uh, in Hungary, he comes to, I think, a very uh, balanced uh, and, and quite, quite precise assessment uh, also of Hungarian uh, responsibility. Now, Andres Shoshan, he's the fourth uh, author. He's really a communist uh, by, by this time. You know, he gets converted uh, to, the, to the communist ideology, partly through the experience of the Holocaust. And he writes an all-European panorama. So again, if Munkachi and Levai, uh, the other two uh, authors, are really focusing on Hungary, Shosh is the first one in Hungarian to talk about the genocide against Jews in an all-European frame. And he again already uses the word genocide. He's discussing it, how to translate uh, that term into Hungarian. There isn't yet an established uh, translation uh, for it. So he's suggesting a number of uh, alternatives. Uh, and, and he's again, as a communist, he has a very strongly so to say, ideological Marxist uh, uh, reading uh, of the economic uh, causes of, of the Nazi, uh, Nazi violence. So again, the, the, the four of them all offer very different uh, perspectives. I would say, you know, one religious, the other from the community elite, the third one a kind of left-leaning critical researcher, and the fourth one a, a very ideologically a, a kind of biased uh, a communist, right? So you have, you have basically a whole spectrum of interpretations. And I argue, and this is again my, my melancholy uh, conclusion in the chapter, <laughs> that, that there has never been a more uh, diverse uh, you know, debate about the Holocaust in Hungary. You know, if you look at this, fort, this moment in 47, 48, there isn't anything quite comparable to that uh, today in terms of the variety uh, and also the richness of research and really the monographic, the monographic output uh, of the. That, that's actually where I wanted to go next. So, so what happens to these debates after 1948? Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, that is, uh, again, a, a fascinating question. Uh, there is really a, a, an abrupt break because of Stalinism, right? The debate gets suppressed. Uh, the transnational perspective shows us that uh, the decline of interest also within the Jewish communities happens more or less parallelly also in Western Europe. So if you look at France, the CDGC, uh, and this is again something that Jokush I think shows very nicely, uh, the interest in the topic declines around the same time, the late 40s, early 50s, there's clearly less interest in, in continuing this very, very uh, intense, very, very you know, lively uh, and very, you know, uh, painful uh, discussion about what has just happened. And in Hungary, it's really after 56 uh, that, that mm. the Holocaust as a topic returns. And again, here I want to emphasize one thing which may not be uh, known uh, that, that well. Uh, it's really in the case of Hungary where the large majority of the victims of the Second World War, or we may say the Second World War and the Holocaust uh, in, are Jewish, right? In most European countries, if you look at the overall numbers, you know, in percentage-wise, um, the Jews uh, were murdered in much larger uh, numbers than, than non-Jews uh, in most countries. But it's only in Hungary and a very few other cases, and I think Hungary is the most uh, extreme case, where really the, the, the absolute majority of the victims are victims of the Holocaust, right, who were 
mm. were murdered during the war. So again, it's a very central story uh, uh, in the country's uh, history, or at least should be uh, that. So when the discussion is, is relaunched, there's again quite a quite a great interest, and this is what you see already in the late 50s, but especially then later on in the 70s. Again, Hungary is quite in line uh, with the new interest in the Holocaust at that time. This often takes uh, literary form, though. So again, historiography is lagging uh, behind, and historiography, I would say, is lagging behind all the way until 89, and maybe even beyond. Because until 89, the most important works, and here Randolph Braham's name comes immediately to yeah. mind, the most important works are written uh, abroad, right? So are written in emigration by people uh, in the U.S. or in some cases in Israel. Uh, and, and there isn't really research on the Holocaust in Hungary, uh, which would then have uh, international relevance. There is a number of documentation projects and so on, but it, it does, it does uh, 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 seem very meager uh, in comparison to what we had just after the war, right? So, so again, uh, it's in that sense. I think it's '89 that is the, that is the big uh, 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 breaking point, right? There is suddenly a huge wave of interest. If you look at my introductory chapter yeah. and uh, and uh, what kind of literature I, I refer to there, you will probably quickly notice that a lot of it is from the 1990s. Uh, you know, we started the interview by me saying that I went to high school at that time, and that's when my interest was triggered uh, in these uh, discussions. Uh, and that's really when the discussion is again uh, reaching some kind of a, of, of a peak. Uh, exactly, already in 89, 1990, there are a number of publications, but later on, uh, ever, ever more. And this is that then leads to uh, what I would call a massive politicization uh, of uh, this history. So if I wanted to be very brief about, in a way, the current uh, situation, I don't know whether you wanted to, uh, to ask about uh, that uh, too. So again, if I wanted to highlight just one thing about that, uh, I would say that, that this is the, the problem of, uh, of, a, of a national narrative uh, developing after the fall of communism, which is a national narrative focused on victimhood, focused on, on also the, the victimhood uh, of the Hungarian you know, national community, and how this new mainstream uh, narrative, which is again being institutionalized in a great number of ways, Hyde can then cope with a very different uh, type of story, which is the persecution uh, and extermination of Hungarian Jewry, uh, with uh, again a, a very significant and, and very uh, crucial, in fact crucial uh, involvement of Hungarian perpetrators. So you have, uh, you have that situation and this makes uh, the history of the Holocaust a very polarizing topic mm -hmm. uh, in Hungarian politics and culture until, until today. You have no clear sense uh, of its status, and I think I think we still are, in a way, uh, grappling with you know how to how to incorporate it and how to really talk uh, about it uh, in a larger framework, which is again very nationalistic and and therefore uh, is in many ways unready uh, to to accept uh, Hungarian responsibility for such a major uh, crime. So so it's a fascinating discussion, um, and it's a wonderful book, and I'd love to talk about it with you more, um, but, but I know you have things to do, and I, I appreciate the time. Uh, I always conclude interviews with the with same couple questions, and, and, and so the first one is, uh, I, uh, you've clearly done a lot of reading and, and research on this. Maybe you can suggest a book or two or a movie or something that, that my listeners, or, or me maybe, uh, might might read this weekend. What was meaningful for you as you, you worked on this project? Mm -hmm. uh, you see, I think I have, in a way, 
uncovered a lot of uh, materials which um, <laughs> which are worth uh, looking into, and very little of this is available internationally. Right. So I'll probably suggest something that has uh, been translated into a number of languages, including <laughs> English, and that is uh, Béla Jolt's uh, Nine Suitcases. It's mm. one of the early memoirs, which I actually don't uh, discuss uh, in the book, so you know, it in a way goes beyond the scope of, of, of this uh, modest uh, study of, of memoirs, which I offer uh, in Chapter 5. It's, it's a fascinating book written by a, a leading journalist politician um, of a, let's say, left-leaning liberal, liberal uh, persuasion who uh, survived uh, the Holocaust, was also uh, in, in one of the most uh, gruesome uh, ghettos uh, in, in Oradea Najvarad. Uh, and was also uh, as a labor serviceman on the Eastern uh, Front. Uh, and he describes um, his experiences, uh, I think, with a lot of uh, black humor. Uh, it's a very mm. grim book as well. It's a very honest book, very, in a way, brutal. But I think what he does there, and again, this is uh, something written immediately after the end of the war, reflects, I think, very well what these early uh, responses more generally feel like. You see, when I, when I also study uh, the witness accounts, I think there's a lot more direct evidence in them than in some of the later ones, right? People become more cautious, people become more sensitive about things, uh, yeah. more, you know, also uh, eager to, to maybe avoid some of the worst uh, of the horrors. And this is not so much there uh, early on. And I think Bela Jolt's uh, book nine, uh, Suitcases, reflects that very well. And he's also a very, very interesting uh, writer, a very, you know, a conflicted uh, personality. So I think the book is, is very, very exciting uh, to read uh, also, also today. And also if you want to get a sense of the kind of materials uh, I was dealing with in this book. Well, we're, we're taping this just before or just as I'm starting my um, holiday break. Um, and I'm at a Catholic school, and so we get a lengthy Christmas break. And yes. it does seem appropriate to the subject we study that I am now going on Amazon and ordering nine suitcases <laughs> so I can spend my holiday break reading about the Holocaust. Um, and then the last question uh, is always, what are you working on now? And I know one of the things you're working on um, is being a new parent, but I also know you're an academic. Um, so, so what kind of research are you exploring in the future? Mm -hmm. Right. So as I started with uh, uh, saying that I'm a historian uh, of Jewish history, but I'm also a historian of modern and contemporary European history, my job profile is in modern and contemporary European history. And I, I do want to write a next book, which is more uh, contemporary and which mm -hmm. is also uh, um, more a regional history of Central and Eastern Europe. I'm trying to write a history of the transition period, and I'm particularly interested in something that I think gets debated a lot uh, these days, which is, you know, why the liberal consensus that uh, these countries had after the fall of communism uh, disappeared uh, by, uh, by now. So again, if you look at Poland, or also if you look at Hungary, uh, and maybe even more uh, conspicuously Russia, it's clear that there is a turn to a, to a more authoritarian, more nationalistic, uh, you know, uh, politics. Uh, and I'm trying to understand the roots of both. You know, how could these countries uh, develop uh, in a much more liberal direction uh, around 89 uh, than, than, than before? And, and what are the reasons why now you seem to see this, this uh, backlash against, against that? So this is, this is uh, my current uh, interest. I hope to have a, a monograph about that in a number of years. Again, as, as you correctly mentioned, I'm a young uh, parent, so I might take slightly longer uh, this time. <laughs> but, but I have, I have, I think, a few years 
uh, to to work on this. So this is this is it. And again, it's something that where, where I'm really struggling uh, today, also because of the very recent uh, events in the Western world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I must uh, say that in some ways it makes my research all the more relevant for Western audiences, perhaps. But it yeah. also means that I should probably uh, expand my focus because the crisis of liberalism uh, is really a topic that is not heavily uh, debated in the U.S. and also in the U.K. Right, countries which we teach uh, also in our in our courses as as you know uh, role models for liberal development um, in modern uh, times. Right, I mean in particular we teach uh, British uh, history uh, in that uh, manner uh, at my university in Maastricht, and that is something that again doesn't quite square with the experiences of our students who are now 19, 20 years old yeah. uh, coming to do a BA. So there's something to, to I think, uh, debate uh, there too, for sure. Uh, and I might I might want to, you know, expand uh, the scope beyond Central and Eastern Europe where, you know, again, my primary focus is and where my primary expertise is. Well, it's a great project. Um, and it's an important question. And I hope, uh, I hope that when you've got an answer, and I appreciate the... Um, the political skill with which you used the phrase a number of years. Uh, as a department chair, I understand how this works, but um, but I hope you'll be back on the show to talk about your book when you're done. Well, I would be most grateful if I, if I had the chance again. <laughs> so thank you so much. Um, have a wonderful holiday season, and thanks again for being on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you to you, and to the same, same to you. Thanks. You've been listening to an interview with Ferenc Letzo about his new book, Hungarian Jews in the Age of Genocide in Intellectual History, 1929-1948. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join us next time when I'll interview Ed Westerman about his book, Hitler's Ostkrieg and the Indian Wars, Comparing Genocide and Conquest. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.